Welcome back to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is part three of my series that I did with Bob Mata and Darren Wood of the Defense Diaries podcast, where we are diving deep into the Anthony Garcia case. Garcia is convicted of killing four people over several years in the Omaha, Nebraska area. And technically, that makes him a serial killer. But was he really a serial killer or was he just a jaded psychopath with a specific hit list seeking revenge on Creighton University? And did he really even commit these murders at all? That's the million dollar question. If you haven't listened to parts one and two of my series yet, go back and do that first and then come back here because we are diving deeper into the crimes, into the killer's MO, and into the trial with Bob Mata from Defense Diaries. And we will get into all of that in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. And now, back to the show. Was one of them the vehicle and that yes. um, Anthony's dad owned that vehicle or owned a similar vehicle? Well, it, or it, something like, like from that? my client's perspective, it was even worse. Anthony had once owned that vehicle. Okay. And actually owned that vehicle back in 2008. And I think in, in like 2012 or 2011, he had given that vehicle to his parents. Okay. Who still had it. Like, so, because when, and we're kind of jumping all over the place, but when, when they arrested Garcia, it was, it was a joint task force with the feds and Omaha PD, you know, they had a lot of cops on this thing. So when they, when they nailed him, you know, it was an orchestrated bust, you know, they had been following him, tracking him, pinging him. And so when they made the decision to pull him over, they had people ready in California at both his sister's house and his parents' house to effectuate search warrants there. They had people in Indiana that were ready to get into his home in Indiana. To wow. Effectu- so yeah, it all it's happened. A, quite an orchestrated yeah. endeavor. There. Yeah, it, yeah, it all happened thing. like right at the same yeah. time. So they knew, you know, they knew that they were taking him down like at yeah. that time and that date. So what were the other two smoking gun things you were talking about? So you have... The first smoking gun. So before we go there, let me briefly. So Hunter goes cold, okay, five years, and they really did investigate the hell out of it. You know, like when I came into the case, I got 15 binders filled with their investigation. So they they did a lot of police work. Like it mattered. This was like a family that mattered to them. It was in a community that that mattered. So they, they really investigated the hell out of it, and they just couldn't make the link. So fast forward to Mother's Day of 2013, this nice older couple, the Brumbacks, the state's timeline is that, are, you know, between 415, 445 on Mother's Day that uh, an intruder comes, knocks on the door, Roger Brumbeck opens the door, he is shot uh, four times from an intruder who is standing outside of the house and he shoots into the house. The intruder then steps over uh, Brumbeck's body Mrs. Brumbeck had run to the kitchen to arm herself with a knife. Mm-hmm. Again, the killer grabs another knife from the kitchen and a, and a knife fight ensues between Mary Brumbeck and, and the killer. Mary Brumbeck is, is stabbed in, in, in excess of 35 times. Wow. 
29 of them in her hands. So you know that's defensive wounds. Yeah. You know, she's fighting, trying to keep yep. it. Like she was fighting for her life. Mm -hmm. And um, I can only imagine, like when I try to envision that scene, like how it was going down when I was preparing for the case. Well, I mean, let me ask you, would you, you know, if somebody had just shot your husband, he's laying dead, he's chasing you around with a knife, he's stabbing you repeatedly in the hands, you're fighting for your life. I mean, would you be screaming bloody murder? Like, I mean, just like instinctually? I mean, do you think that you would? Probably. <laughs> right. I mean, to me, like when I think about that, you know, I, I don't know that you'd be saying things that were uh, necessarily clear and concise. No. But, uh, but you, I mean, I think that you would be screaming. Probably. Like help or just anything, anything that you could right. just, or just screaming at the top yeah. of your lungs, like screaming literally bloody murder. I would it, think. Right. Yeah. You know, so their timeline was always an issue for me. So the Brumbecks are then killed on the on the third, I, I think that was a thirteenth as well, but it was it was definitively a mother Mother's Day, and it was in May, first beautiful day of the spring. You know, which if you kind of imagine a Mother's Day at about four thirty in a kind of a another bedroom community, probably a lot of barbecues going on. It was like a, it was a beautiful day. I yes. think it was like like low seventies, perfect, perfect yeah. day. You know, family like gatherings everywhere, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, so. The, the, that timeline always haunted me. I always had a big problem with it because to have four gunshots being fired from outside of the house into the house and not one witness. Nobody heard it. No one heard it. That can't be. That can't be. <laughs> so, you know, and, th and these are the things like when you talk about California dreaming and Generation Y that they simply, because Todd Cooper, who wrote the book that most of these shows are using as their reference, simply didn't bring our evidence in that we, mm -hmm. that we entered into evidence that we thought was incredibly compelling. And, uh, you know, that story has just never been told. So like we're, you know, I'm, I'm going to start it here today with you kind of delving into, you know, kind of the defense side of it, because this thing is not as clear cut as, it, as Todd Cooper likes to make it seem that yeah. it was. And we are jumping around a little bit. So I have to apologize to our listeners, but it's really hard not to be jumping around yeah. because there is so much to cover and there are so many rabbit holes this case will bring you down and it's just so much to it so it, it is and you know so but but kind of to nutshell it so we've got the the hunters um young thomas hunter and shirley sherman killed in, in 2008 in march and then fast forward five years and then you go to the brumbecks who were killed on mother's day of, of 2013 mm-hmm and like you had said just prior to me kind of jumping into the Brumbecks, at that point, they make the Creighton connection. Yeah. Okay? They see that because uh, Roger Brumbeck was either the, the chair or the director of the department and, and Hunter had either been the director or the chair. They were both very high ranking within yeah. the department. They then at that point say, okay, well, there's the connection. So yes, they didn't kill Stephen Hunter, the father, but they killed his son. And he obviously was employed by Creighton. So we've also got uh, Brumbeck, who obviously was, again, employed at Creighton. So they had that connection. So they then go, uh, Derek Moise and other uh, cops from OPD go to Creighton. And they say, look, we, we've kind of discovered there's a connection between this cold case from five years ago and this, this Brumbeck killing. And we need everyone, a list of everyone that's had a beef of any kind with 
anybody, either on staff or they were fired or they filed a lawsuit, whatever, whatever the kind of beef is, we need those names and we're going back, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Like we want like a comprehensive list of anyone. Mm-hmm. And this is where the dramatic music starts playing in my head because there was one name on multiple lists um, that they were. There were a couple of names. Were, oh, that repeated on everyone's list? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was a there was a Russian guy. The Russian. The yeah, Russian I remember that. Yeah. Uh, Michael Belenke. Okay. Who really had beef with mm-hmm. Creighton. Really, really had beef. Like, the whole Belenke thing <laughs> was eerie. Like, mm-hmm. this guy... I, I really liked him for the Brumback thing. Like he, he had serious beef with Creighton. He had been terminated. Um, you know, he had made some really weird phone calls to like Omaha PD, you know, uh, like after he heard about, you know, after he heard about Brumback getting mm-hmm. killed, you know, cause they were, they were looking into Brum, uh, into Blanky hard. So rewind a little bit for people who aren't aware who, of who the Russian is. Who was this, this person? What? He, what he, was his connection? He was another resident of the program. Okay. Um, you know, and he was there, you know, at the same time that Garcia was, but he was in the program for longer, a longer period of time. He was terminated from the program. He ended up moving to the, like, kind of the great Northwest, like up around Seattle, like on the border of Canada, and was kind of living like um, in uncharted territory. He was like kind of living like off the grid, kind off of. Off the grid yeah. kind of thing. And yeah. You know, so they were looking hard and, and, and like he actually ended up getting a gig up in Canada as a medical examiner, like a chief medical examiner. And he had a bunch of issues up there. Like he was he was screwing up like the autopsies. Is the this autopsy. the one? OK, yeah, this is that guy. OK. And so Belenke, you know, so when they're trying to look at his alibi for the date in question in terms of the Brumbeck killings, it really didn't stand up. And when we did a lot of investigation into that and it, you know, it turned out that the time cards that he had signed, because every time that they would have to go in and, you know, perform autopsies, they obviously indicated on a sheet. So his sheets did not, did not hold up at all like he it became clear that he was that he had said that he was there but he was not there that day so he was falsifying records yeah he absolutely was an attempt to write himself an alibi yeah he was and so we were we were all over him like as a defense team we we were like this blanky guy you know and in like this this call that he made and i don't know if it was to Derek moise or not but you know it was like it was very eerie it was something to the effect of like oh you know like i I heard the Brumbecks uh, got murdered. He's like, you know, that's really unfortunate, you know, because in in the cops, like they Omaha had spared no expense in investigating these cases. Like they had traveled up to Canada. They spent the money to go like investigate him. So they were looking hard at Belenke. He wasn't like a cursory suspect. He was a person of interest. So at that point, basically, when they get the list, Belenke's one of the guys on there. Garcia is one of the guys on there. You know, there were a few names. So Derek Moist, just by kind of luck of the draw, draws Anthony Garcia's name. And what they did with almost everybody on the list, and if you're not aware, you don't have to be charged in order for the police to subpoena your bank and telephone records. I did not know that. Yeah. So, and, and, and to be honest with you, I did not either. 
mm-hmm. until I got this case. You, you know? can just be a person of interest and they can they can subpoena they can subpoena your bank records. They can start going your... through your life with a magnifying glass. Exactly. And... So Moise, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, picking a name out of the hat, God Garcia. So he, that was one of the guys that he was looking at subpoenas his bank records, subpoenas his phone records, and he gets two hits. He sees that, uh, number one, that Anthony Garcia was in Omaha on the day because his phone had pinged, his GPS had pinged. So he was in Omaha on the day of the Bumbeck killing. What reason would he have to be in Omaha? Because didn't he live in Indiana at he the did. time? He did. Um, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. And he also had drawn out money from an ATM like, like a couple days before, like like 600 bucks, I think, or something like that. So, but it was, it was his presence in the state that really got Omaha to say, all right, this guy, because that was the first question they asked. Why was he in Omaha? Like, what reason did he have to be in Omaha that yeah. day? So um, they liked him immediately. So they, they you know, and... One of my beefs with how they handled the investigation was if he becomes a person of interest, you know, and they've kind of got that, that kind of strong circumstantial evidence, you know, because mere presence is never enough. You can't just have it that, oh, well, he was in the state, so we think he's the murderer. Got to have more than that. I mean, it, it, it certainly it's creating a little smoke to where you're like, oh, okay, well, this guy doesn't really have any discernible reason to be here. The problem that I had with Omaha is that they never asked him. Like he was never questioned ever. Like, like it, to me, the first move would have been, okay, we just subpoenaed his records. We know that he was here. Why don't we find out what his explanation is as to why he was in Omaha? And they didn't do that. That never took. Place. They just said you're under arrest, or <laughs> what? No, I mean, so, no. So, but- I mean, essentially, but there's there's a, a period of time where they're investigating, where they're digging into him, right? You know, kind of trying to get as much information as they can about him, going back to Creighton and and getting as much information as they can about him, about like what went on in his you know career at Creighton, you know, like what was his beef, like it was his beef of such an extent that it might drive him to kill, you know, right. five years after the fact. So remember, this is 2001. No, seven years after the fact is like it, it, it was like that type of gap between Hunter and when he's fired. And then, you know, we're talking 12 years, you know, after he's fired that that if he's the guy came back and he kills the Brumbecks. I mean, that's a hell of a grudge. So what exactly was the beef with each of those individuals? So he was fired by who who led that Hunter? See, but that's the thing. No. Like, that, that's what I was telling you yesterday. You, you know, I mean, he had his issues at Creighton that we talked about yesterday. You know, right. the thing with the, you know, the, with Boutra and the, the weirdo prank that he did where he's, right. you know, but Hunter still, even at that point, didn't terminate him. You know, he gave him the opportunity to resign. and But moreover, what, what even flies more in the face of, of the state's narrative is the fact that Hunter wrote him the letter and got him his next residency at, at UIC. You know, I mean, like without Hunter, he's not getting that. So it's like when you're kind of looking and and he screwed that up, he, he being Garcia, you know, but that was no fault of Hunter's. You know, Hunter just got him the gig and then he yeah. went and, and screwed that up all on his right, own. Right, right. You know what I mean? So like as far as like having a beef with Hunter, it just didn't add up to me. Like, and it still doesn't add up to me. It just is one of those things where like the guy, despite 
how much this guy screwed up. He still didn't terminate him. And moreover, and more importantly, he got him his next gig in another residency at a reputable school. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's not like he had to go down to, you know, some kind of medical school in Mexico. Right. You know? Like, I mean, he went to UIC. It's not Harvard by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly a reputable program. You know, so like I always had that beef kind of with that portion of their narrative because that the whole revenge thing was their whole theory. Their entire theory of the case was that him being fired, which wasn't accurate, you know, from that Creighton thing just caused him to spin off that he could never recover in terms of his career, you know, and that which he was destitute. Is, I mean, and that didn't, that's not true at it's all. It's not true. I no. mean, he, he owned a home. I think he had like a, like an older model Ferrari or Lamborghini. Yeah, he he had like two. He had, he had um, right. I mean, yeah, a couple not, nice yeah, cars. This, yeah, this guy was not destitute, and he no. spent a ton of money at strip clubs. You know, <laughs> like I mean, we laugh, but you know, that's a that's a that ain't cheap. That ain't cheap. That's an expensive <laughs> hobby to have. You know, a hobby. Because, I love. That. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the girls are, uh, you know, they're good at their job typically, and they can extract money from people pretty pretty well. So. You know, you have to imagine he was spending quite a bit of dough in there. And, you know, so he wasn't destitute. And, and like I had said yesterday, he, like he is not the guy that at age seven decided, oh, I'm going to go to Harvard Medical School and I want to be one of the finest doctors that's ever graced the planet. Like that wasn't him. Like he had tried to go to law school first, didn't do well on the LSATs, kind of like decide, huh, screw it. I'll take the I'll take the MCAT or whatever it is for medical school and, you know did well enough to get accepted out in, in Utah and, and decided to go to medical school. And, you know, his parents were both working class folks. His father was a, a postal worker, retired, had worked for decades. Mother was a, an RN, you know, wonderful, wonderful people, you know, who I, I, I got to know like very intimately, you know, in terms of like dealing with them and trying to save their son for three years. And, you know, his brother, same deal. Like they, like everyone in, in the family was just completely normal, you know? And in terms of kind of what we were talking about yesterday, when you're trying to dig into these folks to see if there's like hints from their past as right. to like what would have led them down this road to, you know, is, can it possibly be that this guy is the guy that they're saying that he is, you know? No. As a younger person, did he have any signs of mental illness? Didn't he have a little something in his background? He had, I mean, I think at most it would have been diagnosed as depression. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there was certainly no like huge red flag, you know, like manic depressive type things. He didn't have any kind of psychotic episodes like that. You know, like I, I told you yesterday, I, th I think that, um, he did suffer from like serious migraines, you know, but he played football for, I think all four years of high school, you know what I mean? So, and like we were kind of talking about yesterday with the kind of head trauma, that seems to be a running theme with a lot of serial killers that, you know, a lot of them have, have suffered head trauma at some point in their well, lives. Definitely. Every, every case I've ever covered, there's been that common denominator of past Head trauma, concussion. Which seems to me yeah. like that would be such a big hint for right? people that are studying that type yeah. of shit, like that are trying to figure out what maybe makes these people tick. Mm -hmm. Like for that to kind of go, and, and, and maybe I'm just not knowledgeable and maybe they are digging into that. I, I just certainly have not seen 
tons of studies done about that link about the no. head trauma then maybe affecting somebody in the sense mm -hmm. that you know maybe that is the that is the triggering right of what turns them into what they ultimately become mm -hmm. you know? well as we know there are no giant strides being made in the mental health um field really at all i yeah. mean it's definitely something they need to look into and study more and give more focus to but yeah every case i've covered has had an aspect of head trauma migraines things like that especially a lot of the crazy like pro wrestling cases i've covered like chris benoit and jimmy snooka and they all had those previous head injuries as well so yeah and they yeah and ended i can see that injury. i mean you know yeah. whatever kind of you kind of lay in terms of your your view of professional wrestling you know there's always been that debate that you know oh it's fake well <laughs> i mean that may be true in terms of the outcome mm -hmm. but in terms of their athleticism and in terms of you know the maneuvers that they're they're pulling oh yeah other and the, the you know the violence that exists within that sport that's very real there are very real injuries yeah, that happen no, no question yeah. about it so you know i think that the only aspect of wrestling that may have been you know like fake in terms of scripted was probably like the outcome you know so they kind of had like a narrative or a story going with that but yeah i mean that, that kind of stuff I, i'm sure that these professional wrestlers were getting concussed constantly yeah you know? and i just did another case ronald exantis was a semi-pro football player and he had a lot of head injury too from his past and murdered a six-year-old child yeah. in a like psychotic state so yeah and it's it, it's it, you know i mean it's kind of like it's a, a never-ending growing list of professional guys that you know aaron hernandez the mm -hmm. former tight end from right. patriots like you know he just lost his shit yeah you know and became like i mean a guy who was set Right. financially for no apparent reason just became murderous mm -hmm. you know you have like junior Seau. it's it's, it's, it's like mean, a really yeah. long list you know and like sean gale was a safety totally for bears. and you know the one common denominator is that all of them when they studied their brains after the fact they found that they all had cte yeah you know so i mean that's clearly you know an unavoidable link i think that's what finally pushed the nfl and it took a lot of bullying to get them to the position because there's so much money at stake. Mm -hmm. You know, the NFL starts worrying, are we viable? Mm -hmm. You know, if, <laughs> you know, if they're going to determine that this is an incredibly hazardous sport for people to play, you know, it then becomes the question of, well, okay, people are making that decision to do so with the knowledge going in, then that's on them. But, you know, is it going to start limiting the pool of, uh, you know, potential players that will actually, like, I probably never would have allowed my kid to play football like knowing what i know now yeah in terms of the brain injuries that take place you yeah know, when i played you know they used to call it ringing your bell you know it's yep. like you, yep. you'd, you'd hit your you know you'd, you'd literally see the stars mm -hmm. when you had a head-on head collision and it's like you know you'd literally i'd be woozy mm -hmm. you know and and i realize now that i had suffered a concussion mm -hmm. you know but you know shake it off you know get in there for the next play you know yeah. so that that went like unchecked for ever right you know up until very right. recently so know. yeah that's something they definitely have to i mean that's just we're coming up with these in a few minutes of just sitting here but there are so many even your guy john wayne gacy totally yeah he, he had suffered a head injury when he was a kid yeah you know? um and and you know like gacy and garcia didn't really show any of the early signs like you know, like the head on a stick type of animals and torturing animal type stuff that a lot of these guys do. 
Yeah. Um, you know, neither of them like kind of were into that. No animal um, torture, no fire starting, no bedwetting, none yeah, of that. Like, and Garcia was like, for all intents and purposes, a pretty normal kid. You know, mm-hmm. it was like he was not antisocial. He, you know, was a sweet kid. You know, he, he played, he played sports in high school. You know, he dated girls. He was like a normal, normal kid. And like something at some point, if he's the guy, kind of sent him off the rails. No, you know, I mean, and even if he's if he is the guy or if he's not the guy, either way you kind of look at it, he's he was a strange strange dude. Yeah. Like when I when I met him, he was a strange guy, you know. But to me, you know, anyone that would have the opportunity to kind of select what area of medicine that they'd want to practice in and tends to gravitate towards forensic pathology, like we were dealing with dead people's <laughs> kind of a weird dude to begin with. I agree. And um, Garcia and the Russian. Well, this floors me a little bit and it's a little unsettling how many wackadoodles there are in the, um, becoming doctors, like talking about Dr. Death and yesterday and um, then these two, they've had, they had like some mental issues and whatever. They are just kind of odd ducks. Didn't get along with people. Yeah. And it's... Uh... And I, I can't remember if I was talking to you this about it off air or on air, but, you know, what happened within two months of this case, um, kind of getting on the trial track is that, you know, Illinois, uh, in terms of their um, licensing committees, you know, obviously contacted us as his counsel and said, look, we're suspending his license, obviously. And we said, yeah, we, we understand that. I mean, we're not necessarily going to you know, fight it at this point. Plus he's incarcerated with no bond and he's going to be in there for a while. So, you know, I mean, do what you're going to do. But what that ultimately ended up doing is they, they changed the law in Illinois because like, I think we did do it on air, but the licensing boards were handling everybody, you know, hairdressers, real estate agents, you know, everyone's in doctors, you know, so they, they started to realize in real short order that, they had to change that, that there had to be way more oversight when you're talking about doctors in terms of licensing. So that actually, they, that like Garcia changed that law in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So kind of going back, so so we've got, um, and you had asked kind of what were the circumstantial evidence. So there's the ping on the phone that puts Garcia in uh, the area of Omaha. Okay, so they, they've got that. And then as they start digging in, and they're obviously refreshing the recollection as to the hunter killings. So they start looking at all these different things and then they get the second piece of circumstantial evidence, which was the Honda CRV. So they see that Anthony Garcia owned, I want to say it was a, I can't remember the year. It might've been a 2003 Honda CRV, uh, but that he owned it at the same time that the hunter killings had taken place. So that was like a huge red flag for them. They're like, okay, so the guy's in Omaha on the day of the Brumbeck killings. He owned a CRV. We've got this Mary Raffle Ganger, um, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something very close to that. Uh, you know, we have her spotting this this vehicle that is the same make and model as what he owns. So they've got those two things going for them right there. And then a few days after the murder takes place of the Brumbacks, um, 
Omaha PD gets a phone call from this uh, doctor, Chandra Boutra, who says, you know, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything. You know, I, I, I really don't. But, you know, I know that there's been this link made with Creighton. Um, and I just wanted to let you guys know that on Mother's Day, um, you know, around 2.30 in the afternoon, that my house alarm was triggered. And, you know, I happened to be out at a Mother's Day brunch with my family, so we weren't home. And, you know, we had been having some problems with that back door where it doesn't lock all the way. It's like it's like a like a double door like this. And there's been occasions where, you know, the wind has blown it open because it's not not a securely uh, fashioned door so much so to the extent that we ended up pushing a couch in front of that door so the door wouldn't blow open anymore. But, you know, our alarm went off. We didn't really think much of it. We thought, again, it was the wind had just blown the door ajar and that, you know, it got alerted. They called us. We said, we're fine. You know, we're out at, at lunch. And then, you know, and then I see this story breaking news. And, you know, I just thought maybe you, you know, would want to look into it a little bit, right? Because what was her affiliation with Anthony Garcia? They had something from the past, right? Yeah, so she's she's the instructor that he had the beef with, like okay. like a like a vocal like screaming match with her, like where he was certainly the aggressor. You know, like he Anthony always felt like he was being discriminated against because of his race, like and then like you know and, and Butra was. Um, Indian or Pakistani, you know, I mean, so she, she was a person of color as well. Right. So that didn't necessarily, you know, make much sense in terms of Anthony feeling like he was being picked on, you know, or, or you know, singled out because he was Hispanic. You know, it, it was, they just did not get along. Like they, their, their personalities did not mesh. And that was where Hunter had gone to, to him and he said, look, that's your instructor. Like you, you have to apologize to her and he refused to do so. And that was kind of the last straw, right? So immediately when they're digging through the Creighton file, them being the Omaha PD, they see notated in his file this beef with Butra. So what they do next is they go over and they dust for prints and they look for DNA samples. So off the handle of the back door, they were able to pull a very degraded small DNA sample off that and they sent it off to the lab for testing. So at that point, by the time my client was arrested, they had gotten results back saying that he could not be excluded as being uh, you know, the provider of that DNA that they found on Butra's door. So at that point, in terms of probable cause, which is what they needed to keep him under arrest and to get it to move past the initial stage of the trial stage where you have to show the judge that there's probable cause for them to move forward to trial, you know, they had the car, they had the mere presence, and they had the Butra stuff, okay, with, the, with this DNA sample. And they didn't need to get in to the details of the level and the quality of the DNA sample. It was enough for them to just say that he couldn't be excluded as somebody who would have left the DNA because what they didn't have on Brumbeck, which they did have in their minds as far as the hunters was that Garcia was in town until after he's arrested. After he's arrested, 
you know, they then got his, his phones and he had a, a tablet with them. And at that point, they found that he had, at least according to them, that on the tablet, there had been a search on either Google Maps or just Google for Chandra Butra's address. So they mm-hmm. claim that's on his tablet. Yeah. And right. okay, so criminal defense lawyer, Bob, I know you say this is circumstantial evidence, but to me, it this all just seems like overwhelming circumstantial evidence. Like there's just thing after thing pointing to... That he was in town, for sure. Well... For sure. Too many coincidences, I think, here. So, so and then they get his phone records and they ping him at um, this wing stop. Like, so he's at a wing stop at like 3 to 3.15 in the afternoon on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And they got that again from pinging, triangulating him. So they had him in this particular area, like kind of jumping into how we attacked the tablet search. Um, that's a whole thing, you know, because remember, like, we're not just going in speculating. We were hiring experts. So we obviously got experts um, with respect to the technology side of it. And, you know, we had them look at because essentially what they do is when they get um, anybody's phone and this is kind of a a little tip for you all out there, all of our wonderful listeners, that nothing on your nothing on your phone is ever truly deleted. Oh, anything that you think that you've (laughs) deleted off of your phone is not. So what they took uh, when they got a copy of all of his data. Um, from his phone and the tablet, they ran it through this thing that law enforcement uses that's called Cellubrite. And what this does is you take a dummy phone, you connect the phone that uh, you're trying to extract the information from and run it into the dummy, the blank phone, the wiped phone, and it, it brings in all the data from that phone into the, the wiped clean phone. So through that, that is where they were starting to see all the deleted information from both the tablet as well as uh, his cell phone. And they didn't find anything on his cell phone. Like uh, all that they found in terms of the Butra search was on this tablet. All right. So at that point, you know, we had hired an expert to say, okay, take a look at this. And we end up finding out, and this is kind of like, like I don't even feel like we can go here at this point because it's, it's there's so much. It's mm-hmm. like a- everything that they found, we had a direct answer for. Because okay. I get what you're saying. On, on its face, it's pretty damning. You yeah. Know? I mean, the guy apparently seems to have beef. I mean, theoretically, he could, um, even though I don't think that really adds up in terms of the reality of the situation. You know, you've got him in Omaha for sure through the ping at the the wing stop on. So they know that he was, again, in Omaha on the the 13th. I mean, and they have like a trail of receipts and stops between his home and Omaha. So like, right? Yeah, so he made a stop in your home state in Iowa at Casey's, Mm -hmm. you know, and he had bought uh, a case of beer there. Okay. Um, They also, uh, again, they have him pinged at the wing stop where he spent like eight bucks. sounds like he bought like a drink, like a cocktail because they have beverages there. Got like a, you know, some kind of cocktail. I don't know the eight there. Um, and then, you know, where that really gets interesting in the whole Brombeck timeline is where I'm going to, I'm going to change your mind on it. Okay. It's, like, it's, it's, it's not <laughs> only, well, I mean, just kind of harken back to when I was talking about the situation under which the state pigeonholed themselves into that, that, killing time between 
4.30, 4.45 on that Sunday where mm-hmm. no one hears gunshots. Right. No one sees anybody strange in the neighborhood. No one sees anybody shooting into the... And, and the way that the Brumbeck neighborhood was situated is you had a long street. It was, it was like a T. So um, you had the one cross street at the very top where it was, you know, dead ended up there. You, once you hit the end of the street, you had to either turn left or right. The Brumbeck's house sat directly in front of what would be the top of the T. So their house was, if you were to head down their street and look, you know, straight ahead of you, their house would be at the end of the T, you know, right there. Okay. So it was like at the top of kind of the hill a little bit and straight down, you'd have, you know, the houses on either side of the street. So do you understand how I'm situating Mm this? Mm -hmm. So, um, in, in these houses were maybe, you know, 12 to 15 yards apart max, you know, I mean, these weren't like palatial lots, you know, it was kind of like a, it was not as a highfalutin neighborhood as Dundee by any stretch. It was Mm -hmm. a a more modest neighborhood, single family homes, and to not have anyone hear anything, Mm -hmm. not have anyone see anything. And, you know, when I start really kind of digging into that, you know, and and the neighbor directly to, if you're staring at the Brumbach's home, directly to the right of their home was an active Omaha police officer who was actually home that day mm-hmm. with his wife, and he didn't hear any gunshots. He's not a person who would have just thought, oh, it's a firecracker either. He knows no. a gunshot when he would hear it. Absolutely. Once. You know, and the, and the state knew that that was an issue. So when I'm cross-examining him, you know, kind of their theory was that, you know, his wife's oxygen tank, because she either had um, COPD, you know, she she had something that required her to have a tank that he said would have been hissing, you know. So on cross-examination, I had asked him this question. I said, well, officer, let me ask you this. If a car had been driving in front of your home and had backfired with your wife's tank on, would you hear the backfire from the vehicle? And he said, oh, yeah. The gun that we know from ballistics, we know that it was 9 millimeter, which is going to give off a pretty loud bang, all right, and four of them. Well, if you would have heard a backfire from a vehicle, he certainly would have heard gunshots, you know, from, right. you know. So it just didn't happen. It didn't happen. But, but like, the biggest, the biggest smoking gun against their timeline was the – which I'll get into, which was the forensic pathologist that we hired talking about the state of the bodies when they were discovered because the Brumbecks were, at least according to the state, were killed on Sunday afternoon, not discovered until Tuesday morning mm-hmm. by some piano movers because the Brumbecks right. were, you know, he had a lot of issues at Creighton himself talking about Roger Brumbeck mm-hmm. a lot to the extent where he was leaving the department. You know, there was a lot of big money things that were going on behind the scenes with respect to the university. And, and you know, people were taking exception to some of the things that were going on. When we get to that, it's pretty compelling. So that's kind of where we're at. I mean, at this point, you've got the hunters that have been killed in 2008. You've got the Brumbeck's dead in, in 2015. Uh, I'm sorry, 2013. And from that point forward, they, they've got those three things on Garcia that was enough to get him under arrest. The cops had made the connection with Garcia, Creighton, found out that there were a few smoking gun pieces of evidence out there with respect to 
him, uh, at the very least being in Omaha, you know, they had to pull this DNA off the doorknob of Boucher's house. You know, they had the, the CRV. Along with one thing that I, I forgot to mention is even though uh, in the 2008, there had been a composite sketch that had been done of the person that the, the neighborhood folks said that they had seen walking around. You'll have to judge for yourself whether or not you think it looks like Garcia. Does um, the sketch have a meaty face like Garcia? No. He has a meaty face. He does. He has a very round, meaty face. And no, like, it doesn't. Like this guy's face is pretty oval. His nose looks different, like a, quite a bit different. Like I, to me, it's not, you know, it's not a very good representation of Garcia if it was Garcia. But, you know, they so they had that. So, but at any rate, we're we're basically at the point where they like Garcia for the Hunter and Sherman killings, and they also like him for the Brumbeck killings. And they certainly had more evidence in terms of, especially because of his, like that they actually were able to ping him in Omaha for the 2013 killings. So they knew he was there. They knew he was in the state, and they knew he was in Omaha on the day. In terms of both crime scenes, the one thing that, again, did not occur is there is no DNA found. And we're talking about like, like, and I'm talking about anything that would have, you know, I think in Brumbeck there were a few different samples that were taken that did not uh, in any way, shape, or form indicate that it was Anthony Garcia in there. You know, they, they ran the samples against his known sample and he was excluded as being, you know, the provider of the, that particular DNA. So again, you have two crime scenes, both, involved violent knife attacks the gun you know was used obviously to kill roger so you're not going to really concern yourself with dna from that perspective but the violent knife fight with uh mary brumbeck to me just seems illogical that you know somebody would leave some kind of sample and again you know the, the thing that i was talking about with you that i was trying to kind of draw out of you in terms of like not leaving DNA uh, on a scene. And, you know, and I asked you and you said, well, you know, I'd have something covering my feet, you know, I'd have something covering my body, you know, that that's where, you know, you were like, I'd slick my hair back with Vaseline, you know, I mean, you'd basically try to make yourself hairless and, you know, kind of like cover as much of your skin as possible because, I mean, even a flake of dry skin is DNA, you know? I mean, it does not take much to leave a sample. And they can find that? Like, oh, oh yeah. How? Well, so the, the DNA sample that they pulled from the doorknob of Butra's house, they claim was a drop of sweat. So that's what that sample was, you know? And okay, so it didn't rule him out. It but did, Like, yeah, the Butra sample came back super, super weak. and. Okay. Kind of the way that you, um, when you're talking about comparisons, he came back as a one in 12 match for that, meaning that one in 12 human beings on the planet would match that sample. Oh, okay. Like, so it, it wasn't, a, like, it didn't match. There's something called alleles when you're dealing with DNA. And it, I think that he had matched on, like, 13 alleles, you know, and... So we had hired an expert who's brilliant, brilliant DNA guy named Carl Reich. He was a local guy. 
uh, we just got lucky that he was local to Illinois. He had the ability to be able to break down DNA to a layman in a way that people could actually understand it. He was adamant that our guy, that was not our guy, you know, and he was able to break down the, you know, kind of the peaks and the alleles and like why, you know, he was able to break it down in such a way that it was clear that that was not Anthony Garcia's DNA. They wanted it to be, you know, they really wanted it to be because it fit their narrative so perfectly. You know, it's like, oh, well, first he tried to go kill Butra. Butra wasn't home, so he audibled, and he decided to go kill the Brumbacks instead. You know, and but a drop of sweat could belong to literally anyone, any delivery person, anybody, right? For sure. Well, and and that's what I'm saying. And, it, and that particular sample was a one in twelve match to Garcia, meaning that one of the jurors would have also right. been, you know, yeah, been good able point. to not be excluded. It was a very, very weak sample. Right. You know what I mean? So like when you're talking about DNA, you want that like one in three billion. Like mm -hmm. it's just like it can't be anybody else. It's yours. Right. You know, this was not that, you know, and, and further, this guy's MO, if it's if it's Garcia doing both of these things, is not, he doesn't creep around to the back door. This guy walks right up to your front door, rings the doorbell, and commences to kill him. Like that's yeah. like he wasn't the backyard creeper guy. So just a different MO. Like why would he go to the back door at Boutros as opposed to doing what he does where he just goes to the front door? Recently? Well, it's not like he had a well-established MO, <sighs> MO yet either. It was only his second time that we know of. So Yeah, but he both times have. he went to the front door. I mean, that's yeah. established. It's, just, it's more established than going to the back door. True. Right. And this is where we're going to end part three of our deep dive into the Anthony Garcia case with Bob Mata and Darren Wood of the Defense Diaries podcast. We've got two more enthralling episodes left in this multi-part series. So you're going to want to check those out and see how this story ends. And if you're still hungry for more about the Anthony Garcia case, well, you're in luck because the Defense Diaries will be doing an entire season of their podcast about Anthony Garcia and his trial. That's right. Season two of The Defense Diaries is going to be all about Bob Mata's role in this trial. And you're really going to want to hear that. This is Kelly Barron's Brink from True Crime IRL signing off and reminding you, until next time, lock your doors, people. Just lock those doors. Bye-bye. <laughs> True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 